public-private partnerships, PPPs or P3s, are playing an increasingly important role in the development of social infrastructure in the Middle East. As governments seek to address the region's growing infrastructure needs, PPPs offer a flexible and innovative way to finance, design, build, operate and maintain vital infrastructure assets. From hospitals and schools to transport, water and sewage systems, PPPs are being used to deliver critical assets across the Middle East. So my name is Andrew Thomas. I'm the Advisory Director at WSP in the Middle East. And in this episode of the WSP Anticipate podcast, I'm pleased to be joined by Nasser Masood, founder and CEO of Concept Realization. In today's episode, we will discuss the challenges facing PPPs in the region and the massive opportunities they offer in delivering efficient social infrastructure. Good day, Nasser. Welcome to the WSP Anticipate podcast. It'd be great to kick off the episode by hearing a bit about your background and your career. Thank you, Andy. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to be on this uh, podcast. So I refer to myself as a PPP strategist and transactions practitioner. Uh, I run a niche consultancy firm called Concept Realization, and our mission is to help clients formulate credible and sustainable win-win strategies and transactions in public-private partnerships. Our focus is on what we call the social sector, which uh, covers healthcare, education, social housing, and uh, public amenities. Um, In a way, Andy, I kind of feel that it's uh, somehow my destiny to end up in this field. I went through my career picking up various qualifications and experiences and then found myself um, with a base that actually allows me to really deliver value across all of them. So like yourself, I'm a civil engineer, chartered civil engineer. I went through all, all of that training. Um, I did a master's in economics and management, and then I studied law. I'm a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators. And I also did a master's in finance uh, at London Business School, specializing in project finance. And of course, as, as you know, to, to really lead and understand PPPs, you have to have a good understanding of all these uh, disciplines. Uh, and I've been in the field for the last 28 years. I remember the date because it coincides with when my second son, Ziad, uh, was born. Uh, literally, just after his birth, we were appointed. I was with Coopers and Librand uh, to lead and advise them on the prison contracts, Bridgend and Fazakali, which were the first PPPs to actually be signed by the UK government. Nasser, thank you for that. So when governments are considering, for example, a social PPP, what are the main types of uh, PPP that they can consider? That's a good question. And and it kind of often comes up when we're structuring PPPs. So in a way, you can think of PPP as a spectrum uh, between pure services and pure infrastructure. And of course, there are different, different ways in which the PPPs are structured. Uh, in terms of the risk uh, that is allocated to the to the private partner, uh, but I, I like to categorize them in three broad uh, categories: um, the infrastructure PPPs, uh, which I think are most common, and uh, in a way, I think more than ninety five percent of PPPs done in the in the UK, for example, were infrastructure, and that's similar to, for example, the project that you and I met on the Saudi. Uh, second wave uh, PPP schools, uh, 60 schools all done on an infrastructure basis. So, of course, that's 
doing the in the building, the design and build, the financing of it, and providing maintenance and other facilities management, but not doing the core services, so not doing the pedagogical services in that case. Or Al-Ansar Hospital in Saudi also, which is uh, an infrastructure, PPP, where the clinical services are not delivered. There's Within that, there are also the equipment-based PPPs, and uh, this is where the, the likes of GE and Siemens and so on come into it, and this is about providing equipment. I mentioned those in the context of healthcare, but of course, there are equipment PPPs across uh, a whole spectrum from, from trains and controls and so on. Um, and that's where, again, the provider can come in and provide only the equipment, uh, maybe the, the piece of infrastructure that houses that. Uh, but within that, they will deliver either just the maintenance of the equipment or provide the, the service. And the, the third category is, uh, it's often called integrated PPPs. I, I like to call them service-based uh, PPPs because the core thing about those PPPs is actually delivering the service. And uh, we see those usually with the infrastructure being provided. Great. Okay. So three uh, main types of PPPs then. So maybe we can have a look then. What are, what are the sort of pros and cons, the, the strengths and weaknesses of the three different types, putting aside the percentages and so on? Just, you know, what are the strengths of each type? What is the best type of PPP that governments should consider when they're looking at a social infrastructure project? I mean, I, I think to, to kind of weigh up pros and cons, I think in the first place, we should look at the objective that the government is, is looking to achieve uh, in configuring a, a PPP. Um, and, you know, I go back to one of the, one of the catchphrases that were being said uh, when you and I started on PPPs many years ago in the UK, um, when the task force used to say PFI, because that was the term then for public-private partnerships, the private finance initiative, it used to say private finance initiative is not about finance, it's about management. Um, and, and that kind of really strikes home because when a PPP is being done just for the sake of getting funding, it's usually addressing the wrong objective. The objective really needs to be about bringing private sector uh, expertise. And I think then we can understand the pros and cons um, in terms of why, why governments would, uh, would want to bring those on board. So, uh, you know, if we look at the, an infrastructure PPP, for example, I think where the government has the competence and the readiness to deliver the service itself, whether it's the teaching in the classrooms or the healthcare service within the hospital, but requires infrastructure that is reliable, that can be done promptly, uh, and that remains uh, up to date in terms of its uh, technologies and so on, then, you know, that would be a, a good, so that's a pro for doing an infrastructure uh, PPP. I think that the drawback with infrastructure PPPs, because many governments think that that's actually an easy way out, that you just do the infrastructure PPP. I think sometimes getting the right capacity and having the future proofing built into the contract can be a challenge. And I, and I would say that's in particular relevant to uh, technology-driven projects. And, and healthcare is clearly more and more technology-driven. And even uh, education, I mean, we're seeing much more technology coming into the classroom and even outside of the classroom. So by locking itself in for a period of 20 or 25 or even 30 years in a contract that has little flexibility can, can actually be a, a, a drawback or a con. Um, 
with um, a similar thing in a way applies to equipment-based uh, PPPs. With uh, service-based PPPs, uh, that would typically be done where the government is looking for support in delivering the services themselves. So um, really looking at uh, a provider that come in and design, build, uh, but also uh, staff, uh, as well as equip, of course, staff and operate the clinical services or the teaching services and so on within that kind of facility. Um, now, the, the the driver to that should really be bringing in the private sector expertise, whether that's efficiency, improved outcomes, that should be the key driver. Um, and um, the, the con there would be that... Um, if the project is not configured in a way that's going to draw that additional efficiency uh, or that improvement, uh, then you're really defeating the object of bringing in the private partner. So an example of that would be um, if you bring in the private partner and constrain them in all sorts of ways and in, in, in how they deliver ser the service uh, to bring it to life, if you say that you must, and, uh, and, and the payment mechanism, for example, is that if somebody is admitted for a knee surgery, they have to have a length of stay of a, of five days, a minimum of five days. Well, you're kind of not getting the efficiency gain if a provider can do a, uh, a knee replacement with, with a turnaround uh, uh, length of stay of three days, for example. Um, so it needs to, the whole configuration of the uh, service-based PPP needs to be done uh, with that in mind so that you are bringing in the, the efficiency, the innovation and so on from the private partners. Good, thank you. So look, um, concept realization and WSP are now, you know, we're, we're in the same uh, market out there. We are re receiving large numbers of inquiries. Um, I know that you sort of prefer the social sector PPPs, but how do they compare? If you're comparing, maybe you receive two tenders on the same day and you're trying to look at one and look at the other. Um, how does a social sector PPP compare to like a transportation or energy PPP? And maybe you can illustrate the differences with an example or a couple of examples, uh, Nasser? Mm, sure, sure. Yes, I mean, I, I took a, a decision some years back that I particularly want to focus on the social sector. I just find um, find it very intellectually challenging, um, and um, you know, one of one of my yeah, my objectives in life is kind of to add value to people's lives. So, you know, I see it done more in that way. Of course, roads also add value to people's lives, but social sector. Uh, PPPs are, are quite sensitive because they, they touch people where it really matters. Uh, of course, roads also do, but you can always get from A to B, even with a bad road. But it's very difficult to get cured if you don't have decent healthcare. It's very difficult for a nation to improve its uh, level of education if you don't have uh, decent schools. Um, the one of the key differences, I think, in, in the social sector is the expectations of people. So people actually expect that the government will uh, provide services and that the government will actually pay for the services, whether that's health or education or uh, social housing. Um, they may be expecting not to pay, to pay for it in an indirect way, um, meaning through the national health insurance contributions or certain taxations and so on, but they don't expect to pay school fees at a public school. They don't expect to pay uh, consultation fees and uh, diagnostic fees and surgical fees when they go to a public hospital. 
And I think this is where kind of some of the um, some of the um, mismatches come up in terms of people's expectations and why we kind of uh, you know would would need to address those because in that sense you know we find that especially social sector PPPs get quite misunderstood and they're compared to privatizations uh, and we can talk later about some of the strategies for overcoming that. You've kind of hinted already, I think, at the answer to this one, but uh, how do we assess the, the success of a service-based PPP? I think being a service, the key, the key measure would, would have to be outputs, outcomes. Um, but of course, uh, outcomes are always difficult to define. And if we're looking at outcomes as a way to, um, you know, in a PPP contract framework, penalize the provider if they don't meet those outcomes, then we have to be quite uh, careful in how we devise these. Uh, we're in the process of compiling KPIs, for example, on a, on a couple of our projects and coming up with KPIs where the provider is entirely in control uh, can be quite problematic. So let, let's take let's take dialysis as an example. I'm, I'm, one of my projects is monitoring a dialysis uh, PPP uh, contract in Central Asia. Um, and with dialysis, you can set out certain parameters for the state of health of, of a patient who is receiving uh, hemodialysis treatments. But if that patient is not observing uh, dietary, uh, dietary and lifestyle and uh, exercise uh, requirements, then the uh, blood tests and so on are just not going to be uh, conformant to the KPIs. And I think this is where the configuration of these KPIs really has to be done with a lot of care and sensitivity. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, I would say throughout outcomes. And another key dimension is uh, what we call generically as customer satisfaction. So in, in, uh, in the case of healthcare, it's patient satisfaction. In the case of education, it's uh, the, the students and the, the pupils or students and their, their, their parents, uh, essentially the key stakeholders within uh, a child's education, um, how satisfied they are with the whole process uh, that, that takes place there. It, it, it certainly feels as if there are quite a lot of challenges um, that we face as professionals uh, trying to advise in the PPP uh, social infrastructure space. Um, you know, when we're talking about schools and, 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 and outcomes for children and outcomes for patients in a, in a hospital, there are so many factors that um, impact the result and impact on those KPIs. But what, what, what would, how, how would you summarize some of the, the biggest challenges that you face on a day-to-day -day basis with your business? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the first thing that comes to mind is uh, how to evaluate demand because um, data is, is always complex. It's complex to find, complex to extract, even if you find it. Um, and sometimes it's difficult to uh, explain why uh, you need this amount of data to actually come up with uh, an answer. Um, the, the issue there is that you are uh, configuring a facility for a period of 10 or 20 years, and there are so many uncertainties also in terms of what will happen there. So uh, we were talking about dialysis uh, earlier, uh, and we know that this is a, you know, a big issue in the region. Uh, and trying to predict what the numbers might look like in 
three, four, five years time is a is a is a task that can be that can be accomplished. But if you're trying to make projections for ten or fifteen years, um, it, it it is complicated. And you know when you talk to dialysis providers, they'll tell you they're not interested in deals that are, especially if they're also building and providing the equipment, they're not interested in deals that are you know south of twelve years. Um, so. You know, these, these are these are issues that governments and uh, advisors to governments really have have to face in terms of how how to configure uh, a transaction with uh, a long time period where the prediction uh, of where we're heading might not be so clear. Uh, and what we don't know if, if, for example, there could be a magic pill out there in a few years' time uh, that might you know reverse the impact of chronic kidney disease. I mean, we don't know if there is. But with all the research that's going on around the world on kidney disease, it's 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 uh, not inconceivable that uh, something like that might happen. Um, and the same with uh, schools, for example. You you know, as you know from from what we learned from the pandemic, uh, is that it is possible to actually do remote uh, education. It is possible to do it uh, as a combination of the two, where the kids can get some interaction but can attend some uh, some classes uh, remotely. Uh, that will automatically make a, an impact on the amount of infrastructure that one needs. We're seeing that in universities as well, uh, public buildings in a big way. Um, you know, now Dubai, for example, is talking about the metaverse and potentially having uh, public services done through the metaverse. That will definitely reduce the need for uh, for that type of thing. So I think just predicting how much infrastructure you need into the future particularly in a context where you're trying to configure a deal for a period of 25 or 30 years, uh, which is the kind of optimal time in terms of amortizing the assets. So I, I think that's uh, that they're the key areas, I would say, evaluating demand and, and really the future proofing and so on that you have. I think the other key one I would like to raise uh, is to guarantee the political support throughout uh, the time period of the, of the project. Um, you know, healthcare is a big political uh, uh, p- political issue always, and not. I mean, I'm not being specific about any country anywhere. Um, and you see governments that favour the involvement of the private sector, and then governments change and they're anti the private sector, and it becomes you know, some uh, just another thing that the provider has to face up to while they're you know trying to do their best at delivering clinical services. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's interesting. That sort of flows quite nicely into the next question, which was around that whole area of public perception. And I think um, you were, you and I are both at that sort of golden age where we remember how the excitement of the early days of PFI and and the kind of rather messy ending to it in the UK, where exactly as you say, the what what's a trend one year, five ten years later, might become something uh, that, that doesn't smell good anymore. So, how big a challenge is this public perception, and what do you think? Uh, certainly, in the in the context of the Middle East, what what can be done to kind of improve the the public perception or public understanding of PPP? If we look at, um, in particular, social sector PPPs as as being, uh, let's use an expression from the FMCG sector, white-labeled projects. So actually, from anyone coming into a hospital or into a school, they have no idea whether this is done under a PPP or under a public sector direct provision. Um, You know, they... 
they might feel a difference when they walk in there that the place is the school is is well maintained and 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 clean and uh, you know has technology that is more up to date and so on they might just feel that um, but the service itself and the the reception uh, there should should feel the same um, the the other dimension of course is whether you know they ha- they suddenly have an obligation to make payments and the UK for example ran a campaign at one time to to say um these services are free at the point of receiving the service and and that that phrase actually captures a lot because it's not saying it's free because people are paying for it through uh nhs cons- contributions and ni contributions rather uh taxations and all sorts of other schemes uh, they're just not paying when they go to get the the particular service uh, and i think as long as those kind of messages are, are motivated that this is a public sector uh, facility uh it's for the public patients it's for the uh, public students it's uh, it's an, a public amenity that is open to everybody and you know if you if you pay to use a public swimming pool uh, which doesn't happen in the region of course but if you pay to use a public swimming pool then if it's under a ppp you're also going to pay and you're going to pay the same amount uh, you might when you walk in find that it just offers a much nicer environment and a better service that's all Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, value for money uh, is another challenge, isn't it? That um, sort of beauties in the eye of the beholder, and 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 proving value for money over a thirty-year period, you, you you virtually need a crystal ball. But I think, look, I'd like to say thank you to you now, NASA, for the invaluable uh, insights you've shared with us today and our listeners. And, um, you know, happy hunting as far as the future goes. Um, I, I know that sometimes you're on the client side and I'm on the private side. Sometimes it's the other way around and sometimes we compete against each other. But good luck for the future and thank you for all of your support, Nasser. Andy, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nasser, for the invaluable insights you shared with our listeners today. To our audience, thanks for listening all the way through. Please leave us a comment if today's discussion has sparked your interest. And don't forget to join us in two weeks for a new talk.